0: It's June 25th, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Thank you for joining us. Want to know, do you care about animal models of psoriasis? I don't treat mice. I do treat psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. What about the conversion of psoriasis to psoriatic arthritis? Is that worth a long discussion or not? Certainly, everyone's worried about death. How about death rates in gout and GCA. That usually makes the news, doesn't it? Everybody's concerned about what the FDA is doing these days, so let's begin with the FDA. Today, Friday the 25th of June, the FDA informed AbbVie that its supplemental new drug application for the use of upadacitinib in psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis has been further delayed. This was a PADUFA decision that was supposed to have happened back in March, was delayed then for unclear reasons, but now it seems a little more clear that the FDA is wanting to get its ducks in a row regarding the tofacitinib situation, wherein it's reviewing the safety data from the oral surveillance study. We've talked about that before. It's a large safety study, thousands of patients, high-risk patients. And strangely and unexpectedly, they found that tofacitinib in high doses was associated with more cardiac events, more thrombotic events, and and, oh, there's an issue of cancer going on here. The data is still under review at the FDA. It's clear the FDA is not going to make decisions on other JAK inhibitors while it's still reviewing the tofacitinib data. Again, and then how is that going to affect the other JAK inhibitors when this is just tofacitinib that's got the data that everyone's concerned about and. Should it? I mean, this is a high-risk population of very sick RA patients, a lot of comorbidity, and they gave them a JAK inhibitor or an adalimumab treatment, and they compared the outcomes. Hopefully, in the next few weeks, we'll know more about this. But it has further delayed JAK inhibitor approvals for other indications, not just for PSA and uh, AS. Um, So, also, the FDA has announced that another one of our drugs— Tocilizumab um, has been FDA approved, not actually FDA approved, an emergency use authorization for use in hospitalized COVID patients on steroids who are bad enough that there's pending uh, supplemental oxygen, mechanical ventilation, um, or ECMO um, to manage what is severe covid they're, they're based on the data that's out there with and we talked about that in the past. A lot of it looks good. Some of it's questionable. It may be trial design. It may be when they give the drug. But nonetheless, the FDA feels compelled to get this drug approved and make it available, more widely available, if you will, for COVID. There was an interesting article in last week's New England Journal um, of Medicine where they talked about the efficacy of tofacitinib when given to COVID-19 patients who were hospitalized with COVID um, pneumonia. So in this particular trial, almost 300 patients were either randomized to placebo or high-dose tofacitinib of 10 milligrams BID, and 90% were on background steroids, and their endpoint was a 28-day either mechanical ventilation and death. And TOFA had much less of those, eight, only 18% versus 29%. I think that's about a 37% reduction with the use of tofacitinib. Death alone at at day 28, there was a 51% reduction in death. Um, Safety signals were not any different. So I think we'll see, you know, there's been talk obviously of baricitinib. And there's a reason baricitinib may work by itself and same probably for tofacitinib. Um, They have antiviral properties and then they control the inflammation, which is really what kills most people with bad COVID. Uh, heard a discussion yesterday with my um, good friend, Roy Fleischman, where he was asked the question about, well, would, why would you give tofacitinib someone with COVID? Because tofacitinib causes blood clots, and, um, and, and that's a bad thing in patients with COVID. Well, that's sort of an idiotic point. Number one, in the safety signals in this particular study, death or other events were not really related to thrombotic events. Secondly, most patients with COVID these days are being anticoagulated because yes, that is one of the ways those patients do die, and the contribution of a JAK inhibitor to thrombotic risk is really only great in patients with a prior thrombotic event, the elderly, the obese. Again, the and the numbers are low. It's like you know one to four more VTEs, venous thromboembolic events per 1,000 patients. It's low but it's significant in a few people. Bottom line, if you get COVID pneumonia and you're in the hospital, you're going to get anticoagulated. I would not stop the tofacitinib. I would not stop any JAK inhibitor for that matter. An interesting study comes from the uh, Danish population where they looked at GCA outcomes, specifically mortality outcomes, and they showed that there was an increase in um, GCA mortality by as much as 50% in the first year. However, when they looked at it 10 years out, it was also significantly increased, but much, much less so. Suggesting that early on, after the diagnosis of GCA, when the patient's red hot with inflammation, when when you're dumping tons of steroids into that patient, this is a high risk scenario. Steroids probably add to that risk of death. But then again, isn't inflammation driving most of the risk? So really, it is the first year that you have to really be careful, watch these patients, treat them aggressively do what you have to do. You know, there's, as you know, um, tocilizumab is approved for GCA. I think it's a bit shocking how little use there is of tocilizumab in patients with GCA. Um, I know it's hard to get approved sometimes, um, but think about it. You're going to use 60, 80 milligrams of steroids in an 80-year-old guy with who's who just lost his vision. Doesn't seem like a great idea. I mean, you, it's what you do right away, but. I think that there's ultimately going to be a switch more towards the use of IL-6 inhibitors in GCA and large vessel vasculitis like Takeyasu's. Only GCA is approved currently. A nice study comes from the Swedish uh, Rheumatology Quality Register that looked at all their RA patients, actually all patients on Biologics were either starting a TNF inhibitor over 4,000 or starting secukinumab, and they looked at the risk of developing anterior uveitis. And what, when they compared the drug risk against the adalimumab risk or against the infliximab risk, guess what they saw? That there was no protection from when you were using or starting secukinamab. There was no protection when you were using or starting etanercept. But the other monoclonal antibody-based TNF inhibitors were all equal to each other, and that would include adalimumab, infliximab, and certolizumab. There's an instructional message here that if you're hoping that a patient on secukinumab or IL-17 inhibition is going to control or prevent uh, uveitis, problematic uveitis, that might be an inaccurate, inordinate expectation. Rethink that approach. Uh, a nice meta-analysis of, of four studies. Turns out there's not as many studies as I thought there were. And I have previously reported that the use of allopurinol does lower the risk of Um, cardiovascular mortality in gout, in this meta-analysis, they showed that there was no clear association, that there was some positive data, but probably a little bit more negative data showing that the use of urate lowering therapy specifically with allopurinol was not associated or not clearly associated with a lower risk of of all-cause mortality and then maybe even cardiovascular mortality. So more research is needed there, I think it's not that clear, simple a story. I think it has to do with what dose you're using, who you're giving it to, what the other cofactors are that might contribute to mortality and cardiovascular mortality. Um, I like this particular report. It's about why our patients are not taking the COVID-19 vaccine. You've seen them, I've seen them. It's a little bit exasperating. It's a a tough discussion to have at the end of a visit, but it needs to be had and you need to be the person with strength driving this discussion they looked at, this is an Italian study, they looked at the rheumatologists and other musculoskeletal specialists in their region and their patients. And they showed that the vast majority of health workers, healthcare uh, workers, were willing to uh, receive, and this is actually asking about your intention, not what you actually did. Um, 82% were willing to get the COVID-19 vaccine. It's healthcare workers, so it's not just doctors, it includes other people. But when they asked the patients of the, that system, only 55% said that they were willing. Um, and even though they acknowledged that having their rheumatic condition probably put them at risk for either getting COVID or having more severe outcomes with COVID. This particular study said it was not out of fear of adverse events from the vaccine, nor from distrust of immunization technology or whatnot. It seemed from their questions that if the patients had more education, they would be more likely to want to get vaccination. So education is the key. I think there are significant issues with distrust and fear, and it's our job to give the patient the numbers. I tell my patients, if you're concerned about safety, don't be. Three drugs go on the market with over 100,000 patient years of exposure. That's the single best measure of of drug safety. I believe the numbers for Remicade, when it went on the market, was like around 800 patient years. Humira, I want to, um, pardon me if I'm wrong here, but I'm not that wrong. Maybe 2,400 patient years when those drugs got approved. 100,000 for three vaccines. It's going to be safe. You know how effective it is. To not take it is a gigantic mistake. I'm sorry if you're against vaccination, but I'm sort of against people dying. And there will be from this, from this, uh, this infection. There's going to be a million deaths in the United States if there isn't already. A nice study from the French Vasculitis Registry looked at the impact of hyper eosinophilia. That's an eosinophil count of between 500 and 1,500. 25% of patients had an eosinophil count greater than uh, than 500. They were mostly male, mostly had skin disease and peripheral neuropathy, and they had hi- uh, slightly higher um, uh, BVAS, or uh, vasculitis activity scores, 21 versus 18. It was significant. Um, having hyper eosinophilia was associated with more baseline Um, renal dysfunction, but overall was not that predictive of worse outcomes. So it does seem to identify a certain subset, but not necessarily predict really bad outcomes. An interesting study looked at a mouse model of psoriasis. I know you love talking about mouse models. This is a 10-week exposure of an animal model that's prone to get psoriasis. And they either gave them um, a, a healthy diet, like a DASH diet, or a Western diet high in sugars and fats, uh, and showed that the mo- the, uh, the mouse that um, received the Western diet were more likely to have a dysbi- intestinal dysbiosis, more likely to have skin psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, more likely to have increases in um, IL-17 uh, gamma delta T-cells and uh, TH17 dependent cytokines. So basically, the Um, diet was driving and stimulating IL-23 mediated disease uh, and giving you all the biologic profile and clinical manifestations, suggesting that diet could be very important. We know diet's important. There's good studies showing that uh, weight loss and diet can not only um, uh, help to treat, uh, ameliorate disease activity, but also prevent disease activity in psoriatic disease. Uh, What about progression of psoriasis to psoriatic arthritis? We know that the risk of uh, any psoriasis patient patient getting psoriatic arthritis is between 20 and 30%. There are a number of studies that have looked at the clinical factors that may add to that risk, and some of them include age, uh, having nail psoriasis, having severe um, skin disease. Um, obesity and in some studies has also been shown to be a risk factor. In this particular study, a population-based study, they showed that the, um, the risk of, this is like 470 patients with psoriasis who did not have psoriatic arthritis, and they studied what treatments they got. It turns out that if you were on a biologic DMARC for the treatment of just your psoriasis only, you had a 73% lower rate of developing psoriatic arthritis, 1.2 cases versus 2.2 cases per 100 patient years, biologic-treated and UVB-treated patients. So there's been one other study that also suggested that um, use of biologics may prevent the development of psoriatic arthritis. That's kind of interesting, kind of cool. If you might think of psoriasis as being preclinical psoriatic arthritis? And why wouldn't more aggressive treatment um, help to prevent the development of arthritis? Now, can we extend this to other diseases like lupus or RA? I don't think so. I think we need data to actually tell us how to treat those patients who have preclinical disease. But I like this study. I think it's going to help inform further studies. Um, Lastly, an interesting study comes from um, uh, Mika Haas' group that have previously studied about disease activity in pregnancy. their PARA studies. They have a new study called the PRECARA study where patients who are either just pregnant or wanted to be counseled about getting pregnant and conception and drugs and blah, 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 blah. The interesting thing about the PRECARA study is that there's an algorithm. It's a treat-to-target algorithm. It starts with counseling. It's then if you have disease activity and you're pregnant, they they either give you prednisone up to 7.5 or hydroxychloroquine and sulfasalazine, then they graduate to TNF inhibitors. Anyway, this 309 patients who were treated with modern therapy in the pre cara trial, um, there was uh, almost 200 live births, and half of those were on TNF inhibitors during the pregnancy. Interesting. What they did show was that patients in the more recent study, the pre CARA study, had less disease activity going in, and that's actually maybe the most important part. So the number of patients with low disease activity or remission prior to getting pregnant was 75%, which obviously throughout the pregnancy uh, and then using this T2T protocol, the modern treatment of pregnancy in RA, that the number of remissions in LDA rose from 75 to 90% by the third trimester. This is far better than anything that's been reported in the past, from especially from this group who does really good work. Now, their old data with the PARA studies showed that prior to pregnancy, that the number who were in this low activity state with remission or remission was like, what was it, 30%, um, and that in as a result of um, their treatment, what happened by the end of the third trimester, it went up to 40%. It was 33%, and it went up to 47%. So... Maybe the magnitude of change might be the same based on where they were at baseline, but clearly the outcomes were better in the pre-cara where they went in with less disease activity. So take home is get pregnant when you have low disease activity or in remission, and two, don't be afraid to use biologics. We've got you know now almost 20 years of experience with a lot of the biologics, saying that they can safely be used during pregnancy, safely be used to conceive. So a r- interesting set of abstracts this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Go to the website. Check out these citations and more. Also, use the backtalk feature on our email, on our website. You can record your question that will feature in next week's podcast. You can be part of the show. We'll talk to you next week. Take good care.